Please remain standing. If you would, take your Bibles to the book of Jude. The very last book of the Bible is Revelation, right before Revelation. One chapter book, and that's the book of Jude. As you know, on Sunday nights, we've uh, just begun to look at this book of Jude. There's a reason why it's put as the second last book. The very last book of the book of Revelation talks about the Lord coming back. It talks about the uh, Lord coming back in the rapture and then seven years of tribulation. Then the Lord coming back uh, again to set up his throne on the earth. The book of Jude talks about what things are going to be like just before the Lord's coming back. And uh, if you are of the same mindset that so many are, we think the Lord's coming back anytime. Uh, he would be welcome, as far as I'm concerned, to come back tonight. That would be great. I would like us to read together Jude, verse number 5. Again, Jude, verse number 5, just one verse, and then we'll have a word of prayer. We'll see what we can learn from this. Help me, if you would, read together verse number 5 out loud. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so grateful for each one that's here. And Lord, as we continue to look at this book of Jude, it's a warning. It's a warning of what will happen before the Lord comes back. Help us to take this to heart, take it serious, fill me with your spirit, direct each word that I say, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, do you know that uh, the Bible makes it clear that before the Lord comes back, there will be time of great apostasy. I know that we might not use that word as much as we should. Preacher, what is apostasy? That word apostasy is a turning away. So before the Lord comes back, there will be many who at one time embrace the Christian faith, who for whatever reason, reason will turn from that Christian faith. Uh, let me quote you a couple verses. The Bible says, 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul said, in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. And well, why will they do that? Well, it says they'll give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 12 says they have cast off their first faith. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, they have erred from the faith. And then 1 Timothy 6 and verse 21, they have erred concerning the faith. So there's a great warning that as we get closer to the return of the Lord, there will be more and more who once embraced the Christian faith, and for whatever reason, they'll turn from it. We've seen that. Folks, we have seen that in these last three, four years, certainly seen in the last 10, last 20, but uh, it, it stepped up the pace these last few years. And that is exactly what Jude is writing about. And he's talking about the fact that there will be people who were, uh, they were deceived and, and they were taken aside. Look there in Jude verse number four. Jude in verse 4, for there are certain men that crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying there that the biggest opposition won't be from outside the church, it will actually be from inside the church, and he's warning. He said it begins, and we saw this last week, he said it begins with just a little bit of a turning. That's why it said there in verse number four, turning the grace of our God. It begins with a turning and it ends with a wholesale denying. Pastor, I don't want to be a casualty like that. And again, that's what we looked at last week, the casualties uh, in the church. Preacher, what are we looking at today? Well, after he wrote verse number four and warned that so many will be turned from their faith, in verse five and six and seven, he gives three examples that he reaches back into the Old Testament 
of people who were blessed, they were favored, they were God's chosen people, and they turned from that after they were believers. Uh, and I'd like to give an analogy that might help you with this, but just because you're saved doesn't mean that you are immune from being turned from the faith. Say, well, preacher, I'm a believer. I can look back to the day that I trusted Christ as my Savior. Again, verse 5 and verse 6 and verse 7 are examples of some in the past who were either believers or they were favored in a special way. They had more than most. And although they could say themselves, we were part of the chosen of God, they were turned. And so if that happened to them, then Jude's point is it can happen to us. And all we're going to do is look at the first one. Look there in verse number five, Jude, uh, verse number five. Jude says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. So he's saying they, they started right, and, and we'll see this, but you know that Israel in Egypt was in bondage. And God set them free, and we're going to see in a minute that that's a picture of our salvation. One time you and I were in bondage spiritually, and God set us free the day that we trusted Christ as our Savior. So his first example is Israel, who was set free from Egypt. I will therefore put you in remembrance, verse 5. Though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed them. So just because they were saved did not mean that they were immune from the judgment of God if they made some bad decisions. Some of you in your younger years were probably great athletes, I'm going to guess. I wasn't. Athletics wasn't my thing. I was too short. I was too slow. I couldn't do any athletics, but I, I checked into hurdling. How many of you recognize hurdling? Men's hurdling is 110 meters, and it's called 110 meter hurdling. Uh, women, is, it, they have what's called 100 meter hurdling. You say, well, Pastor, that's not fair. They should be the same. We won't even go into that, but they're... They're saying that men's stature and men's stride is sufficient that in order for them to put the 10 hurdles that a hurdling event has, for them to put the 10 hurdles for a woman's, women's race, that's 100 meter for a women's race, they have to stretch it just a little bit farther to get 110 meters for a men's race. So it's an Olympic uh, uh, competition. The very first time it was included in the Olympics was 1896 in Athens, Greece. And the idea is that they start off at a starting block and when that starter gun is shot, then immediately they take off and they get into the stride and they hurdle or they yeah they clear the first hurdle keep running three more steps in the second one and they get to the third one and by the time they're done it's 10. so the men have a 110 meter hurdling race and you know back there in 1896 there were supposed to be four men that were in this final race first time was ever in the olympics and two of those four men, one of the men was from France, the other of the men was from the United States, two of them withdrew before it even started. Something physically was wrong, they couldn't do it. So the very first time that hurdling was in the Olympics, 1896, it was left with just two men. Only two men raced, competed against each other. From USA, it was Thomas Curtis, and from Great Britain, it was Grantley Goulding. And uh, those two, they took off like a shot. 
Do you know when it finally came to the finish line, it looked by the naked eye, it looked like it was a perfect tie. That's how close these two were matched as they, uh, and they both did it in 17.6 seconds. I'm not sure any of us could run without the hurdles and do that in 17.6 seconds. But uh, they finally had a look at uh, the cameras and uh, they found out that the American was five centimeters ahead of the man from Great Britain. And that was the very first hurdle. Now, here's my point. It doesn't matter how well you started. There are 10 hurdles that you have to be able to overcome to get to that finish line. And what if you only clear nine? What if the 10th one you get tripped up? For that matter, what if the fifth one you get tripped up? What if at the very first one you get tripped up? You know, if you're saved tonight, the devil hasn't given up messing your life. And the devil has some hurdles that if he can, he will try to get you to trip on that hurdle and be a statistic of somebody that started right but ended wrong. I uh, tried to find what was the most notable of all the hurdlers, and probably the biggest hurdling upset was a Chinese athlete named Lu Xing. And they figured that he, hands down, was going to win that 110-meter hurdling London 2012, the Olympic Games. And he got out of the starting block perfectly. And as people watched, they said, he's got it. He started perfectly, but you know, he didn't even clear the first hurdle. He started right. He failed at the first hurdle. And to his credit, when he got up off the ground because he tripped on that first hurdle, he hopped his way all the way to the finish line and he kissed the final hurdle. But on the Olympic records, even to this day, it says, did not finish. And you know, he underwent some surgeries in order to repair his tendon. The surgery was a failure. He never competed again. Think of those three words, did not finish. Folks, in this Christian life that we're in, we don't just want to start right. We want to finish. And what a sad thing it would be if on your record or on my record that God stamped did not finish. There's a number of verses in the Bible that compare the Christian life to a race. It says over there in Hebrews 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, uh, 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 let us lay aside the weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. If you're saved tonight, you're in the race. If you're saved tonight, that day that you bowed your head and trusted Christ as your Savior, you began the Christian race. But you don't want to just be in the race and somewhere in eternity, God stamps on your run, did not finish. You don't want that. Folks, we want to finish and we want to finish well. So many have started this Christian race well. Galatians 5 and verse 7, ye did run well. Someone was doing great. Paul said, ye did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Notice it was a who. And for so many Christians who started so well, it's a who that messed them up. It's a who that influenced them away from going good guns, great guns for God. I would like to preach on this title, Knocked Out Later in the race. I know that some of you take notes. We're going to look at knocked out later in the Preacher, I'm saved. Good for you. Pastor, I'm bound for heaven. Good for you. 
But there is an enemy to your God and to your faith that wants to knock you out. It's not enough to say I'm saved. It's not enough to say I'm on my way to heaven. You want to clear all of the hurdles and get to the done, uh, end of it. And so God can say, well done. That's finished. Let's look this evening, if we can, at knocked out later in the race. Look there in Jude, verse 5 again. Jude writes, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Again, I say, verse 5, 6, and 7, Jude gives us three examples of someone who started right, but they didn't finish right. The very first, and that's all that we're going to see, talks about this nation of Israel in Egypt and uh, he, he talks about the fact that when they were in Egypt, and you know it's true. You know, when Israel was in Egypt, we know that they were in bondage. They, they went into Egypt thinking it was a great blessing. They, they went during a time of famine, the end of Genesis. And uh, we find there in Genesis 46, they moved down to Egypt during that famine but by the early chapters of Exodus, they had become slaves in Egypt. They were in bondage under a hard taskmaster named Pharaoh. What a picture of lost people, you and I. You know, before we were saved, we were in bondage. There was a devil that hated us and that tried to do everything he could to make our life miserable. And we know the Bible says that uh, their circumstances got so bad, Israel, that they began to cry out to God that God would send them a deliverer. And God heard their cries. God answered it by a man named Moses. Moses, a picture of Jesus Christ. And Moses came in there and Moses said to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. And he said, nothing to it. And you know, the devil didn't let you get saved without a fight. And sometimes we witness to folks, and sometimes we think, boy, the Lord's really softening their hearts. You know, the next time we go back and visit, it's like we never talked to them before. There was uh, one of the other men in the church back in Niagara Falls. He always talked about hot prospects. And he'd knock on a door, and, 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 and someone was really open to the gospel. And he'd tell others in the church, he said, you don't need to knock on this door. And he'd give the address of the person. And uh, he'd say, this is a hot prospect. Well, we'd follow up. It was hot, all right. He was hot, all right. He was mad. He was furious. And we'd go back and tell Sam, that was his name. Sam, he's not near the hot prospect you thought. You say, preacher, how do you explain that? Because the devil, after you and I have witnessed to some lost person at the door, the devil is going to be right there when that door is shut. And he's going to give them a dozen reasons why they shouldn't come to church, why they shouldn't embrace the gospel. It's pictured by Pharaoh. And Moses would say, let my people go, nothing doing. And you know that God used a series of plagues, ten plagues. And we know that those plagues were familiar with the plagues that God used we know it was uh, water turned to blood and frogs and lice and flies and boils and hail, locusts and darkness, and the last one was a death of the firstborn. And we know that when they slew that uh, sheep and, or that lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, that they were set free. And again, that's a picture of salvation. I'm saying to you, we're looking this evening at knocked out later in the race. Do you know the first part of verse 5 gives us the sure salvation that started our race? Again, the sure salvation that started our race. Can you look back to the day when you trusted Christ? Do you know for sure that you're on your way to heaven? The only way you can know is if you've trusted Christ as your Savior. And I'm saying, although it's true that you and I were never actually in bondage in Egypt like Israel was, I know that you and I didn't actually kill a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost of our home like Israel did. In type, it's a picture 
of our salvation and, if you would, our race began with a sure salvation. Listen to these verses, Romans 6, 17. The Bible says you were servants of sin. Hebrews 7, 25, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So our Christian race begins with a salvation. And that's, 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 none of that is new. But look again at Jude, verse number 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, Jude writes, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them. You say, well, what kind of a God is that? The God that delivered them from Egypt, from that point forward, he expected them to continue to do what's right. Listen, when you and I trusted Christ, that wasn't a license to live any way we want, to do anything we want. God, from that point, expected us to continue to do right. And there was a devil that was putting some things in Israel's way. And you can be sure that the devil is going to put some things in your way and my way. Now, quick thought. I, I'm, I'm going to try quick. How many plagues did they endure? Ten. You know, it's no coincidence that when you get to the book of Numbers, that same nation that endured the ten plagues and was set free, a picture of salvation. In the book of Numbers, they now went through ten hurdles. And we're going to see the ten. You say, oh, you're kidding, a ten point? No, I only have two points. Just the second point has ten parts. Pastor, I'm saying to you, if you're saved tonight, it's not like you're home free. You're going to heaven. But there are some hurdles that the devil used to mess up those in Israel. Fifty dropped dead on that one. Two thousand dropped dead on that one. Forty thousand dropped dead on that one. Six dropped dead on that one. Fifty dropped dead on that one. Wait, they were all saved from Egypt but they were put through 10 hurdles now that they were set free. And I want you to think about this, you that know the scriptures, of those that were delivered from Egypt, we know that God supernaturally spared those that were under 20 that were delivered from Egypt. But of those that were older than 20 when they were delivered from Egypt, how many of those that were over 20 actually made it into the promised land? Can someone help me? Just two. Those two were Joshua and Caleb. Two of two million. Okay, so we're going to take all those that were 20 and under round figures, two out of one million Jews made it through all ten of those hurdles. He said, preacher, I'm saved. I have nothing to worry. You have everything to worry about because there is an enemy to your faith that's going to somehow try to mess you up. We've had all kinds of visitors to our church We've had visitors that have come and, and they've come for a few weeks and they just love it. Who wouldn't? <laughs> they just love it. And inevitably, uh, some will sit down, Pastor Carlson, I've never, I've never heard this about baptism by immersion. I think you understand what I'm saying. Because some went to a church where it wasn't done by immersion. And I'm just having a struggle with this. You know, I said to some of them, I'll take all the time with a Bible to show you immersion. But could I let you know that this is just the one of many hurdles the devil's going to try to use to get you out of this church. Some will say, I never heard about the King James Bible issue. I'll take all the time with a King James Bible and whatever Bible you think's the same. 
and I'll show you from the scriptures, but you need to know now, this is just one of dozens of things that the devil's going to try to use to get you out of this house of God. I'm saying to you, the devil is shrewd. He doesn't just have one iron that he uses in the fire. The devil doesn't just have one arrow that he puts in his bow to shoot. The devil doesn't have just one bullet in his gun. Folks, the devil has many ways to knock you out of this Christian race. And how many Jews from the time they were delivered didn't make it into the promised land. They were knocked out later. So again, we're looking at this knocked out later in the race. The very first thing we saw is our race began with a sure salvation. Again, look there in Jude, verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, so you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them. Why they didn't make it. Let's look at these real quickly. And if you're taking any notes, turn there to Numbers chapter 11. I'm going to give you 10 words. They all start with C. 10 words. I hope you don't become a casualty with any of these 10. But Jews did. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, look there in verse number 1. Says in when the people complained, would you write the first hurdle? It's complaining. Folks, hasn't God been good to us? God's been good to you individually. God's been good to us family-wise. And folks, God's been good to us as a church. God's been very good to us. You know the very first hurdle that many of those Jews never made it past. It's this first thing in Numbers 11 complaining. Let's have a look at it. Verse 1. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord and the Lord heard it. And his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. They complained. You say, preacher, what is it that they were complaining about? They were complaining that the journey was so hard, that the journey was so difficult. They were complaining about the food that they were given to eat. They were complaining about the water that they were given to drink. In fact, if you would look, they say, well, pastor, you know what, preacher, I, I haven't really done many bad things since I got saved. Have you complained? Most of us have. Most of us have complained that, God, you're just not being fair. In fact, look how God dealt with complaining. Again, verse number one, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost part of the camp. I'm saying the very first hurdle that they came to was being satisfied with what God had blessed them in their life. Preacher, so-and-so just got a new car. Well, praise God for that for them. Oh, why didn't God give me a new car? That's up to God. Thank God for what you've got. Preacher, that family has ten children. Why don't I have ten children? That's all up to God. Why don't you thank God for what you do have? Preacher, that, uh, that man just got a raise. I just heard he got a raise. Preacher, why doesn't my boss give me a raise? All that's in God's hands. Why don't you thank God that you do have a job and that you are getting paid? Pastor, my family is 100 miles away. And their family is right next door. Preacher, why doesn't God have my family right next door? You just have to thank God for what God has blessed you with. I'm saying to you that complaint, this were saved people. But complaining knocked some of them out of the race 
and they are only days into the race. Some of you would have a date on the top of uh, Numbers 11. Can someone give me a date? 1490 BC, some would have 1491. They just, they just started this 40 years of traveling. Some of them didn't make it past the first week. In fact, look back there in Numbers 10 and verse 33 to tell you how few days have just passed. Numbers 10, verse 33. And they departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. It repeats again, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days' journey. Let me just give you a little detail. When they came out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. They came to Mount Sinai. They were at Mount Sinai just about a year. In that year, God gave them the Ten Commandments. God gave them 600-plus more laws. God gave them the blueprints for the tabernacle. So they have now, it's a year has passed. And now Moses announces, it's time to march. It's time to go. How many days have they marched? Three. And they're already complaining. Three. <laughs> you know, if your satisfaction depends upon everything going your way, you're not going to make it. First one is complaining. Well, if I was God, I'd do things a little different. But you're not God. You need to thank God for what God has done in your life. Again, out of our mouth, uh, sure, God, I'm saved. But it's the but that will keep you from finishing the race. I give you a second thing. Look there in Numbers chapter 11. And verse number four, the Bible says, and the mixed multitude what, what, sorry, that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, who shall give us flesh to eat? Now, start there, beginning of verse four. Again, they're traveling, and the very first sea they came to was complaining. So God had to kill some of them. Now we're in verse four. Second one, it says, and the mixed multitude, say, preacher, who is that? Out of Egypt did come some Egyptians. They weren't all Israelites that came out of Egypt. So these Egyptians, who came out for all kinds of different reasons, some of them didn't like Egypt either. Actually, it was devastated after the ten plagues. So some of those Egyptians came out, and uh, they too were complaining. But they're complaining influence the Jews in their vicinity. But folks, if you're around a complainer, it won't be long before you're complaining. And we understand why the lost world would complain. They can't see God in their life. They, they can't see Jesus Christ in God's working. But if you're around somebody that's always complaining, it's not going to be long before that same kind of talk comes out of your mouth. You can tell who people hang around with by what they say. So look what the mixed multitude was talking about, and in short order, the Jews were too. Look at verse 4. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again. You say, well, pastor, it sounds like complaining. You know what the second C is comparing? Comparing. If the devil can't mess you up with getting you to complain, the devil mess you up with getting you to compare. Say, what are they comparing? Well, look there again in verse number four. End of the verse, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, and the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. They're comparing what they have now with what they used to have. Do you know every year of your Christian life is not going to be the same? There will be times of feast and there will be times of famine. 
And as individual Christians, well, you know, I, it, it used to be that I had a beautiful, whatever it is, there's no guarantee that you'll always have those things. People say, well, you know, I, I used to have a job that I made $50 an hour, <laughs> and now I'm not. That's life. Listen, folks, as a church, we could say there, there used to be a time where 100-plus people that came, and that's true. But that's not true now. It might be true next month. We can't get into comparing because if you allow yourself to go down that road, it'll knock you out. Versus complaining, versus comparing. And, and look what they said. We, we miss the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And all that we have is this bread. Help me, what was the name of the bread? Man, they were complaining about a bread that came down from heaven. They didn't have to make it. It was made for them. They didn't have to grind it in the mill. God did all of that for them. Somehow they lost appreciation for what they had. And all they could remember is what they used to have. If, if the devil doesn't get you with complaining, the devil will get you with comparing quickly. Look at number three. Look at Numbers 12. So next chapter. I said, just as much as they endured ten plagues in Egypt, God saved them from that. How many of them never survived the ten hurdles now that they were saved? Numbers chapter 12, look there if you would in verse number 1. The Bible says, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married for he had married an Ethiopian woman. You ready for the next C? Next C is criticizing. Would you write that down? So the first C was complaining. And the sec second C was comparing. Now the third C is criticizing. Look who they're criticizing, verse 1. And Miriam and Aaron. Miriam and Aaron was the brother and sister of who? Moses. And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses. So they're criticizing him about what? Because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now, when did Moses in his life marry this Ethiopian woman? During the 40 years that he's in the wilderness, he, he, at 40 he ran to the wilderness tried to deliver Israel from Egypt, and God didn't help him do what he thought he should do. And so he's in the wilderness for 40 years. And he meets a Midianite woman, and he marries her. Uh, he wasn't really in the perfect will of God. Now, it says here that she was an Ethiopian woman. She was an Ethiopian woman in Midian. So he marries this woman. He's probably not in the perfect will of God when he does. God knew he married an Ethiopian woman. God still called him. God wasn't floored with that little detail about Moses' life. But all of a sudden, Miriam and Aaron decide we've got to get something to beat Moses over the head with. You know, they were all family. Could I make this statement? You're going to know the warts and the wrinkles of your family better than anyone else. Could I say within a church setting, if you are leadership of some kind, you're going to need to know the warts and the wrinkles of other leaders in the same church more than anyone else. But folks, we all got them. And quite honestly, God knew we had them when God called us into the ministry. When God opened that opportunity for us to minister to the Lord before people, God already knew all those details. And yet he called us anyway. And he said, I want you in my service. They want to knock out Moses some way. 
What do they do? It looks like they think they found the goods on Moses. They're going to criticize Moses for his wife. It looks like that. But as you keep reading, I don't think it's that. Let's look. Let's look there in Numbers 12, verse 2. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? What did that have to do with his Ethiopian wife? Nothing. You know what they have a trouble with? They have a trouble with Moses being in charge. They have a trouble with authority. And mark my words, a lot of criticism, they won't give you the reason up front. But the reason behind it is they don't want that person to be an authority in their life. But they won't say that. They're not going to say, I'm a rebel and I don't want any authority. So they'll grasp at something else. Listen, this thing happened 40 years ago. Why would they draw upon a criticism of something that was 40 years ago? Because they can't say we're rebels that hate authority. So they're going to grasp at anything. Listen, folks, when someone is critical of someone else and it's 40 years ago, there's a much deeper issue. And so they said, we don't think that Moses is any better than the rest of us. God has spoken to all of us. Look there in, in the very end of verse 2, and the Lord heard it. <laughs> you know, God hears when we criticize. God doesn't take it kindly. Look at verse 4. Now the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron, and unto Miriam, come out ye three into the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If, if there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so as faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall be he behold. But there in verse 9, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Verse 10, And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous. Didn't say Aaron did. It looks like she was the ringleader. And so God said, I'll take care of that. Folks, the third one is criticizing. Now listen, any of us, if we wanted to, could criticize. But you're not going to get anywhere with that. And God doesn't take it kindly. Miriam came down with leprosy. Now remember what they just said about Moses, you think you're better than us. As soon as Miriam came down with leprosy, Aaron quickly runs to Moses. He said, Moses, would you, would you please pray for her? <laughs> oh, this is the same Moses that they were just criticizing. The third thing is criticism. They say, preacher, I, I just don't happen to like everything. Who likes everything? <laughs> but you can't go that way. It'll knock you out of the race. I, quickly, I, I'm trying to give you ten, right? Fourth one. Let's pick up the pace. Look there in Numbers 13. Numbers chapter 13. Numbers 13 is a record of Israel sending 12 spies into the promised land. Look there, if you would, in verse number uh, 25. Numbers 13, 25. The Bible says, and they returned from searching the land after 40 days. Verse number 27. And they told him and said, We came into the land whither thou sentest us. Surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak. There, look at verse 30. You know those 12 spies, two of them came back and said, let's take it. Verse 30. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, 
for they are stronger than we. Could you write the fourth C down? Conspiring. Conspiring. Caleb and Joshua said, let's go. Man, let's go right now. God promised he'd give it to us. And you know those ten, they began to change that report. They began to adjust it so it just looked more favorable to their wishing it didn't happen. I see the fourth one is conspiring. It wasn't enough that they gave an evil report. But we find there, look there in Numbers 14 and verse number 4. They said one to another, let us make a captain. Let us return into Egypt. You know what they were conspiring? They didn't want Moses to lead them anymore. They said, let's pick a new captain. Well, God's already given us a captain. What are you talking about? When God had David anointed to be the next king, who was the king? Saul. Because David was anointed to be the next king, that didn't give David a license to knock out the present king. David said, I'm going to wait for God to do that. What we find in Numbers 14 is they were conspiring to do what they should have let God do. I give you the fifth thing quickly. Look there in Numbers 13 and verse number 30. Again, Numbers 13 and verse number 30. I just read it, but Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Verse 31, But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up. The fifth one is contradicting. Contradicting. We've seen so far complaining, comparing, criticizing, conspiring. Now it's contradicting. God said it's a good land. The ten spies said it's a bad land. God said you can go and take the land. These ten said we can't take the land. God said it's a land that flows with milk and honey. They said it's overrun with giants. God said it's a fruitful land. And they said if we go, we're going to die out there. They were contradicting everything that God said. How many of them that knocked out? Quickly, number six. Look there in Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. Now, let's back up and remind us what we're looking at. The nation of Israel was delivered from Egypt, a picture of our salvation. But how many of them, after they were delivered, never made it to that promised land? They were knocked out. They were knocked out by our list of complaining and comparing and criticizing. They were knocked out by conspiring and contradicting. Number 16, verse number 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. So Korah was a Levite. Who else joined him? Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. So here you've got one man, Korah, from Levite's tribe. And then you've got three men from Reuben's tribe. Verse number two, And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. Look what they did. You have 254 people. Verse number three, And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore, then, lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. I've often, when I read that, I think he fell on his face laughing. (laughs) He didn't want that job to begin with. He tried to talk God out of the call to be the deliverer. And here they say, you have taken this upon yourselves. I'm trying to hurry. But Korah started the trouble. And he got Dathan to join them, Abiram to join them, On to join them, 250 princes of the assembly to join them. 
before the end of Numbers 16, all of those people were destroyed. Why? Bad company. Would you write this sixth word down? Companying. 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 Who's your company? I'm talking about where you work. What crowd are you spending your time with? If that crowd is critical of God, you're not going to make it to the end of this Christian race. If that crowd is critical of the Bible, if that crowd is critical of church, if that crowd is critical of getting the gospel to this lost world, if that crowd is critical of missions, if that crowd is critical of preaching, if that crowd is critical of praying, you aren't going to make it because the company that you keep and if you read Numbers chapter 16, the Bible says that the earth opened up and swallowed these, four, these three men. And then God sent out a fire, look there in verse 35, and there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. God had to judge them, and God never would have had to do that if they hadn't kept bad company. Well, preacher, they're my close friends. They're not friends of God. They're not friends of godliness. They're going to hurt you. See, but they're saved. They made some bad choices. Again, I say to you, number six is companying. Look, number seven. Look there in number 16 again, verse 12. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram the sons of Eliab, which said, we will not come up. <laughs> it is, number 16 hadn't finished yet. And Moses was genuinely trying to help the partners of Korah. They were Dathan and Abiram. And I think Moses was convinced that Korah was a ringleader of the trouble, probably couldn't help Korah at all. But he called to Dathan and Abiram, number 16, 12, I think Moses was genuinely trying to help them. Look at it, verse 12. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. Look what they said. We'll not come up. <laughs> We're not coming. We ain't coming. He's trying to help you. He's trying to give you a heads up. Maybe Moses knew some things that Korah had said that Dathan and Abiram didn't know. Maybe he was trying to give that assistant and the assistant's assistant some heads up that would help them to understand there's more to the surface than you see in Korah. I want to help you, man. They said, we're not coming up. Could you write the seventh C down? Close-minded. <laughs> Close-minded. Say, preacher, I'm confused with what's happening in my life. Preacher, I'm confused with what's happening in my home. Preacher, I'm confused with what's happening. There's probably some people that can help you. Well, I, I just want to stay out of it. You might be in it further than you think. And Moses tried to help two men. They said, we're not coming up. And you say, well, maybe they wanted to stay neutral. Look at the next verse. Numbers 16, 13. Here's what these two men say. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up on a land that floweth with milk and honey? What? They said that Egypt was a land that floweth with milk and honey. Look at that again. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey? They didn't come out of a land that flew with milk and honey. That's where they were going to. But you see, because these people had listened to Korah's 
propaganda. Korah had convinced them that they left a land of milk and honey. Remember, these are the men that, you know, they, they don't want to take sides. You've already taken sides. The words that are coming out of your mouth already indicate that you have been listening to Korah. You're going to a land of milk and honey. It's not that you've come out of one. Your talk reveals who you're listening to. Keep reading. Verse 13. Is it a small thing? This is their argument to Moses. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us? He didn't make himself a prince. He didn't want it to begin with. Verse 14, Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth with milk and honey, or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards, wilt thou put out the eyes of this, these men, will not come up. <laughs> put out their eyes. Do you understand? We can tell who you're listening to by the words that come out of your mouth. They're, they're, they're revealing that you think it used to be so good, and now it's nothing but good. You've been listening to the wrong voices. Moses knew that. And so Moses wanted to sit down with Dathan and Abiram to help those two men. And they said, we're not coming. We're not talking to you. You brought us out here to kill us. You're trying to make us a prince against, uh, over all of us. We are not coming. I say to you that the seventh one is closed-minded. I give you the eighth thing. Look there, Numbers 16 41. Numbers chapter 16 and verse 41. But on the morrow... Well, let's remind ourselves, the day before is when the earth opened up and swallowed Korah, swallowed Dathan, swallowed Abiram. The day before is when fire came out and destroyed those 250 in a plague. So this is the next day. Wouldn't you think a nation of Israel that just saw the earth open up and saw Korah and his family and Dathan and Abiram and their families gone, wouldn't you think that those Jews would say, whoa, we are messing with more than Moses. Whoa. But look what happens the next day, number 1641. But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron and said, ye have killed the people of the Lord. <laughs> Moses didn't do that. God did that. And you know what God was doing? God was just cleaning out some of those that were not focused on God. Could I give you the 8C? It's called cleansing. Cleansing. Ladies, once in a while, you just have to clean the house. You have to clean the rooms, you have to clean the bathroom, just have to clean the kitchen. It would seem that that's what God was doing. Look at these people, though, that got cleaned out with it. I give you the ninth one quickly. Numbers chapter 21. I've got two left here. Numbers chapter 21. Now, let's remind yourself where we're going. This nation was saved from Egypt. But how many of them in that journey to the promised land were knocked out because of bad choices that they made in their life? Folks, we don't just want to run in the race. We want to finish. I gave you the ninth one. Numbers chapter 21, look at verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. So it was a difficult journey they were making. And the people spake against God, that's not wise, against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us out of the Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
for there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. What was the light bread? Manna. They said, we hate this stuff. But I give you the ninth one, confused. Confused. You know, they, they had it all mixed up. They said, we sure do miss how it used to be. We just don't like how it is. They were confused. Isn't that so typical? They had followed God's way. If they had followed God's way, they'd already be in Canaan. Remember, God wanted them to go from Egypt into Canaan in short order. After they left Mount Sinai, they could have in 11 days been in Canaan. Instead of a 40-year journeying, it should have, if my calculations are right, it should have taken one year and 11 days. It took 40 years. Because they didn't trust God. They believed the report of the ten. But they're blaming Moses for not getting him into the promised land. That's why I say the ninth one is confused. There are Christians who wanted salvation and they got saved. Then they got weary of what God was doing in their life. Some of their decisions were bad decisions, so it extended how long it was going to take until they came to the place that God wanted them. And they blamed God for it taking so long. Could I give you the last thing? I'm done with this. Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25. Again, all, all we're dealing with is Jude verse 5. They were saved from Egypt, and yet God destroyed them along the way. Folks, it ought to be your prayer and my prayer, Lord, I'm saved. I want to go all the way. I don't want to miss all of your blessings. Numbers 25, look there in verse number 1. Numbers 25, verse 1, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. You say, Pastor, that's a terrible thing. You know, that nation here was brought in close proximity with Moabites. Those are sinners. And you know, they were encouraged that they could have close fellowship with the Moabites. And in short order, they are committing whoredom, fornication, uh, sleeping together wickedness. You know, for many of these, it didn't fall to complaining and comparing and criticizing, to conspiring and contradicting and accompanying, to close-minded and cleansing and confusing. You know, the last thing is carnal living. Carnal living. And they just threw over their shoulder everything that they had been taught and decided we've only got a short life on this earth to live. It's time to live it up. And God destroyed thousands of people on that last one. Preacher, what are you saying? If you're saved, thank God for it. But in these days before our Lord comes back, the devil is going to try to trip you up in this race by these ten things. And you've got to be sharp. And you've got to stay on your face before God. God, I don't want to be a casualty. I don't want to lend my ears to the voices that are going to turn me away from God. I don't want to ignore everything that I have stood for. I don't want to walk away from every blessing that God's given me. I don't want to be a casualty in the Christian life. And how many have? Do you know there's a true story told about a man named Henry Nelson. He lived in Wilmington, Delaware. He was a veteran of World War II. 
He had served as an instructor in the Army Chemical Warfare Department. He knew everything about chemicals. He not only learned it, but he had taught it to others. Yet he ignored a warning by the superintendent of the housing development that he was staying in. He was staying in the Riverside housing development. He had an apartment there. He lived in that apartment, and there was a warning. There was tape across the front of the apartment. There were signs on the front of that apartment that the apartment had just been fumigated by hydrogen cyanide gas. That means nothing to me. But it was a warning. And, and you couldn't get into that building without tearing down this tape, without moving the barricades. And you know what? That man, Henry Nelson, tore down the barricade at the door. He removed the tape because he had two blankets, blankets that he left inside his apartment. When the neighbors saw him remove the sign in the barricade and went in, they called the development office. But when the employees arrived, it was too late. His body laid sprawled on the living room floor with two blankets in his arms. You say, Pastor, that's crazy. And you're right. He had written warnings. He had verbal warming, warnings. He had been trained in the army, and yet all of it he threw over his shoulder because he thought he was different. You know what Jude says in verse 5? He just said in verse 5 that there are going to be casualties in the church because there are going to be influences that make their way into the church that try to get you to just turn just a bit and just a bit more and just a bit more until you are completely denying what you one time held. And I'm sure Jude knew when he wrote that, people would say, don't worry about me, I'm saved. And he's going to say, let me tell you about some people who are saved. Israel was saved from Egypt, and yet how few made it all the way. Folks, we've got to take it serious. You say, preacher, I, I just don't know what to think. I just don't know what to say. Yes, but you're already listening. Because we can hear it by the words that come out of your mouth. We've got to take it serious. Let's pray. Father, pray to help us. Jude is warning us what it's going to be like in the last days. He's talking about a great turning away, a great apostasy. He's talking about influences that people, they're listening to. Or in our day, we would say they're emailing, and they're texting and WhatsApping and Facebooking. And they're listening to voices that are going to cause them to be a casualty. Lord, we need to listen to you. Would you help us to do that? Would you help us, Lord, instead of saying, I'm saved, I have nothing to worry about. Help us to say, Lord, I'm saved. But there is a real devil. And there is a wicked agenda to get God's people out of the house of God. Help me not to be a casualty to those voices.